presents First Years, a podcast for all but geared toward adult first-time readers of Harry Potter, who need a space to enjoy each book and have adult conversations about it. My name is Sarah, and I'm honored that you've allowed me on this journey with you. Crack open a butterbeer, grab a seat, and let's discuss. Today, we're going to be going over seen and unforeseen. We're back! Welcome to episode 59 of First Years. Today we're going over chapter 26 of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Thank you guys so much for being patient as we took our summer break and I am so excited to be back. A quick announcement. For those of you who will be at LeakyCon in Denver, I will be there too and I will be presenting a panel called Death as a Symbol in Harry Potter, and I hope to see you there. This episode, we're diving right back in where we left off, which is chapter 26. The title is Seen and Unforeseen. What an intriguing chapter title. Things that you have seen are things that you have laid eyes on before and are familiar with, while unforeseen is different. This chapter isn't seen and unseen things that you saw and things that you missed, but unforeseen, which means things that you didn't anticipate or predict. And I think it's a good choice of words, especially when it comes to what happens with Trelawney in this chapter. She definitely didn't foresee that coming. Umbridge didn't foresee Dumbledore finding a new divination teacher. And I think Harry and we as readers didn't foresee ending up in Snape's mind during Harry's lessons. Harry also didn't anticipate the response that he received after his interview. Harry literally thinks, as he finishes, quote, He wondered how people would react to the story. He guessed that it would confirm a lot of people in the view that he was completely insane, not least because his story would be appearing alongside utter rubbish about Crumplehorn Snorkax, unquote. Yet he changes a lot of minds when his interview comes out. Harry's story is the one that makes sense because the Ministry's version of things just doesn't seem to add up. And people are smart. They know when something doesn't sound right. So Harry's version must be true. This is the first time he's really been able to share the story with others and not carry it all by himself. And his story is met with letters upon letters. The Death Eaters still haven't been caught by this point, and Harry's story spreads like wildfire, which Umbridge, of course, tries to stop and yet makes it worse. (laughs) Hermione is right. The fact that she banned anyone from reading it ensured that everybody read it. Umbridge threatens everyone with expulsion, which seems absolutely ludicrous, but thankfully all of the students are much smarter than she is and can outwit her and keep their papers hidden. The professors are finding ways to reward Harry. Cho forgives him for everything that happened on their absolutely terrible date. And Seamus Finnegan finally comes around. He believes Harry and even sent a copy of the interview to his mother. Can you imagine how much of a relief that is? 
The Daily Prophet has been discrediting Harry for months. And Seamus was a prime example of the work they did. So this is a huge moment. And I think a little bit of a redemption moment for Seamus, too. He believes Harry. And what a relief that must be. It's one thing for strangers to be convinced, but a whole other thing for someone who has known you for five years to finally come around and admit they were wrong. This whole interview was about things that Harry has seen, and the result was completely unforeseen. I also think it's so interesting that despite this interview being done by a writer who slandered Harry many times before and is printed in a paper that's not normally taken seriously, that the interview is definitely taken seriously. And I'm sure that's partly because readers trust Rita Skeeter, like they did all of last book, and that Harry is a credible witness. Once given the chance to fully explain everything and name Death Eaters who were there, He's a trustworthy source. He was just never given the opportunity to share his side until now. That evening, Harry has another very vivid dream about what Voldemort is up to. Earlier in the chapter, Harry dreams of the door again, and he almost opens it. There's a blue light emanating from the right side of the door, and it's ajar. He's almost through it when Ron's snore interrupts him. Harry is supposed to be clearing out his mind, but we know from him that that is much easier said than done. This curiosity about this door is also eating at him. After the party, he gets a full-on vision of what Voldemort is up to. Voldemort is with Rockwood. He used to work in the department and says that Avery's information is wrong. Bode never would have been able to take it. And that's why he fought so hard against Malfoy's imperious curse. After he sends Rockwood away, he looks into the mirror and Harry sees himself as Voldemort. And it scares him awake. This is big information we're getting. Malfoy has performed an unforgivable curse on someone, Bode. And it was so that Bode could retrieve the weapon. But that information was false and he'd never actually be able to retrieve it. Why do you think Bode wouldn't have been able to retrieve it? We know now that the weapon is probably small enough for someone to take, and that it's physical for someone to take. Do we think Avery had wrong information? Or do you think he knew the information was wrong, and was trying to either delay Voldemort, or try not to anger him by telling him that the plan wouldn't work? What do you think? Ron again tries to get Harry to go to Dumbledore, but Harry, yet again, brushes him off. He says that he shouldn't have even seen it because Dumbledore wanted him to learn occlumency. This paragraph really concerns me because it very much feels like Harry is shutting down emotionally. He's very in the moment of the dream, and he's discussing things with Ron and figuring things out, and then as soon as Ron brings up Dumbledore, Harry shuts him down, says he shouldn't have seen it anyway, and goes back to bed to end the conversation. Yet the next day, Hermione scolds him for seeing it at all in the first place and tells him to forget it, and he's angry with her. So that's a really interesting juxtaposition between when Harry says he shouldn't have seen it and when Hermione says he shouldn't have seen it. I think either way, they probably shouldn't act like this information doesn't exist, 
because look how much more information they've found out. Bode was recovering in the hospital, and so the Death Eaters had to kill him and tie up that loose end. Harry puts together the pieces that the weapon is in the Department of Mysteries, and what a perfect name for that place because it's been such a mystery (laughs) with this door the whole book. Sturgis Podmore was probably caught up in the Imperious Curse too, and was arrested for trying to get through that door. They know now that Voldemort has proper information about how to get this weapon, from someone who used to work down there. They probably shouldn't just ignore that. They've seen it, and ignoring it might bring unforeseen consequences. Yet it is seen by Snape in Harry's mind during their occlumency lessons, and he questions how Harry saw it. And Snape tries to say that Harry is attention-seeking and hasn't made progress because he feels important when he gets these glimpses of information. And Snape reminds him that this isn't his job. And Harry points out that it's Snape's job. And the next time Snape tries to pry his mind open, Harry is able to defend himself and ends up in Snape's memories. We see him as a child, crying as his parents argue, sitting alone in a dark bedroom as a teenager, someone laughing at him as he tries to get on a broomstick. And Harry says, quote, It was unnerving to think that the crying little boy who had watched his parents shouting was actually standing in front of him with such loathing in his eyes. Unquote. Snape has been a villain to Harry from day one, but I wonder if this changed how you see him at all. That's the first time we've ever been given a glimpse into Snape's past and who he is outside of teaching. It's the first time we've been given an opportunity to form some empathy for him. Did it change your perspective at all? Or shock you? Or no? When Snape goes into his mind again, Harry is running toward that door, and it opens. He finally makes it inside, and he sees a, quote, black-walled, black-floored, circular room lit with blue-flamed candles, and there were more doors all around him. He needed to go on, but which door ought he to take? Unquote. So we finally see what's behind the door. And it's more doors. And I want to chat about doors and doorways today because this has been such a significant part of Harry's story so far in this book. Doors often represent transition points and change in our lives. We've all heard the phrase, when one door closes, another opens, right? It usually means positive things are ahead. It also represents a choice. When you're faced with a doorway, you have to choose whether or not you're going to enter it and experience whatever is on the other side, or you're going to stay with what you know. Doorways represent the transition between places. The threshold is the passage between two spaces and is what allows you to enter and exit from one place to another. And by entering or exiting, You're symbolizing that choice that you've made. It's also where these two different places connect. Because we can't see what's on the other side of a door, usually, 
we'll never know whether or not the decision to walk through one is good or bad because we won't know the consequences of that decision until we're already through the door. So a door could be something that's connected with fear or anxiety. But Harry isn't afraid of this door. He just wants to know what's behind it and is excited when it finally opens. Doors can be locked or unlocked, and whether that's a good or bad thing depends on what's on the other side of it or what's on your side of the door. Locks keep people out or keep people in and prevent them from getting on the other side of the doorway. And it can be a good way to keep people from something dangerous. Remember that this is the Department of Mysteries. Workers are called unspeakables, and Voldemort is after a weapon. What is on the other side of the door could very well be dangerous. Doors can also represent the transition between life and death, and be a way to move from our world into the next. Doors were painted in Egyptian tombs so that the spirits of those who had passed could leave through those doors and onto whatever was next. Some gods were connected with doorways, and along with that, beginnings, endings, and transitions. Doors are both an entrance to a new place and an exit from an old one. They can symbolize beginnings, endings, big transitions, loss, moving through challenges, moving on, rebirth. All of these things are difficult things to go through and work through, but they're also significant moments in our lives. They're usually periods of growth for us. Doors, like I mentioned earlier, can be symbols of protection by keeping unwanted things out, but we also decorate our doors with protective elements too, depending on our belief system. And when there are a bunch of doors, the decision to go through becomes even harder. Which one do you go through? We finally get a glimpse at what is on the other side of this door, and it's more doors. So think about what all of those decisions represent, too. Doors are high stakes, since we don't know what awaits us on the other side. And this is especially high stakes. We know now that there are more doors on the other side, and somehow this leads back to a weapon that Voldemort wants. Can you get any more high stakes than that? So think about this in regard to Harry personally. We know he's been dealing with the trauma of book four. That is a big transition, too. Harry's life has forever been changed by what happened in the graveyard. That was symbolized in a smaller way with the Thestrals. His reality will literally never be the same. And here is the doorway that signifies more change and more change after that with all the other doors that await on the other side. Let's think about that too. We've been dreaming about what's on the other side of this door for hundreds of pages now. And we finally get through, and there's more doors, more decisions. I wonder if that ties into a theme we've talked about previously, of unmet expectations. You think there's going to be an answer on the other side of this door there are only more questions and more things to discover. Maybe that's what this book is all about. I'm curious as to your thoughts about what kind of transition this means for Harry. Why do you think the door finally opened for him in his lesson with Snape? What's the next transition for Harry? Do you think what's on the other side of the door is dangerous? 
Should Harry have stayed behind the door and not tried to get through? And if we continue with our theme for this episode, seen and unforeseen, I'm sure no one foresaw this. More doors on the other side. Another mystery to solve. Now, this occlumency lesson is interrupted by a scream, and we walk into a scene where Umbridge has fired Trelawney. And Trelawney is not taking it well, and not doing well overall. She has an empty sherry bottle in her hand, and she's a mess. We know from book three that even though Trelawney does fake a lot of things, she actually does have a gift of foreseeing things. And to connect with our chapter title, Umbridge says, quote, you didn't realize this was coming, unquote, which is a jab that she should have realized or foreseen exactly what was going to happen. Umbridge is showing her power at the school, but she is one-upped by Dumbledore. Dumbledore exercises the small bit of power he still has over her by allowing Trelawney to stay and finding a replacement teacher before Umbridge can. But what really sticks out to me in this scene is that, although Dumbledore has been really mysterious and mostly absent during this book, he still shows up when it's necessary, just like he showed up for Harry's hearing and brought out a victory again against Umbridge then. He also shows up for Trelawney to ensure that she doesn't have to leave and gets a victory again. And the most shocking of all is that the new divination teacher is friends, who we haven't seen in a while. How do you think his classes will be different than Trelawney's? What do you think Umbridge will do? Let us know at firstyearspodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach us on Instagram at firstyearspod. You can also find me on Instagram and TikTok at Rita Saram, V-E-R-I-T-A-S-A-R-A-H-M. My TikTok is not spoiler-free, fair warning. <laughs> Let me know if I will see you at LeakyCon. I would love to meet you guys if you guys are there. I very much hope to see you guys at the panel. It's not going to be spoiler-free either, just a fair warning. Um, but if you're not going to be there, I will also live stream it um, on my personal Instagram, and I will announce that and all the details of when it's going to be um, on the First Year's Pod page so you guys can catch it if you'd like to. Otherwise, for next time, you need to read chapters 27 and 28, and I will see you guys next time. I've missed saying that. First Year's is a production of Matchbook. It's produced by Quinn Parker and myself, Sarah Jones-Dittmeyer. All sources can be found in our show notes or on our website at authorsarahjonesdittmeyer.info forward slash first year's podcast. That's Sarah with an H and Dittmeyer is spelled D-I-T-T-M-E-I-E-R. Please remember that staying a Harry Potter fan is the biggest form of revolt that you can have. And we are committed to continuing to make this fandom and this community safe and welcoming to everybody.